Sitting next to her on Diaz is Jim P., and he's worried because he knows how I introduced people from the last time. So, <laughs> Anyway, that's a long, drawn-out affair, and there's more than he up here today. So we're just going to do it a little bit. Since the last time I met Jim in Fairview Heights, he has gotten married. He's been married for a year. He has 29 years in Al-Anon. And since that time, I understand that Jim has an addiction. He got addicted to hokey pokey. But he turned himself around. And that's what it's all about. May I present Jim P. from Warrington. You don't know what I'm going to say, do you? Oh, no. <laughs> let, me pre- let me present Rich S. Sometimes, especially in Houston, he's known as Randy. He hails from St. Louis. He has 25 years in AA. Yesterday, he was getting out of his car trying to go in the hotel, and a clown opened the door for him, and he just thought that was a very nice gesture. So. Oh, all of you sleeping? Oh. May I produce, may I re- present Rich S. Now, Pauline W. is from New- Newport, Kentucky. She has 23 years in Al-Anon. Last night she went to the restaurant and she ordered a bowl of vegetable soup. And when it came, there was just a little bit of soup in the bottom of the, the platter that holds the bowl. She didn't think that was bad, but as she ate, it kept getting more and more and more full. She called the waitress over and said, what's this? And the waitress looks at it. Is that the vegetable soup? She said, yes. Well, that has a leak in it. So. Yeah, it must be because the Cubs lost last night. I don't know. So. Anyway, we were going to try to see if we can't get them to orderly come in front of the microphone because apparently we need to have the one microphone here so that we can record everything so that you can get your CDs. So I'm going to ask a question, and I believe we're going to start with Pauline. She's going to come up and respond to that question, then Rich, then Jim, then we're going to have Kathy, and then when we're done, I'll ask the next question. We'll just go in reverse, so we'll keep going like that. The first question we have is, what does it mean to you to detach? Good morning, everybody. I'm Pauline Wolf. Um, What does detachment mean to me? So I think what I need to do whenever I get attached, whenever I think about detaching, I have to pause in my process and figure out what I'm attached to. And I get attached pretty darn easily. So I'm going to tell a story that I think will show you what my process is. I just went through CPR training last week, and they gave us, you know, the half rubber body that you do the compressions on. And the EMT said to myself and my partner as we were all paired up, do 50 compressions on the body. So I stood up and did my 50 compressions, counting them out loud to be sure that everyone knew that I completed all 50 compressions. My partner stands up and does 32 compressions, and I only know that because I'm still sick enough that I counted every one of them. And at the end of 32, she said, well, that's good enough. Now, here's where my attachment began. I started attaching as soon as I started counting. So now I know what I'm attached to. I had to pause and ask myself, why am I attached to it? In real life, my competitive trigger 
had been activated because I wanted to make sure our group did it right and we did it the best. And my self-righteous trigger got activated because the EMT said, do 50. And so she needed to do 50. So for the next 10 minutes of the training, my focus is on her and she's going to get a certification, and down the road some person's going to have a heart attack, and she's going to get to 32, and she's going to go, well, I'm done. (laughs) Then we had to do compressions on the baby. 50 again. I stand up and do my 50. At 17, and the EMT is right in front of us. I'm shining like a star. I'm doing my 50 compressions wonderfully. She stops at 17. I only know that because I'm so attached now. I'm counting it. And at the end of 17, when she stopped, I thought, the EMT is going to say something to her, and I will be right. Nope, the EMT said, that was fine. Next group. At that moment, it was at that moment that I realized I was attached, and and that's when it really bubbled up in me. And then I started laughing to myself because once again, something came into my life and my character defects get activated and I start wanting to get into things. In my home group at home, when we talk about detachment, we talk about a little acronym that that we use in my home group for detach. Don't even think about changing, coercing, controlling, whatever your C word is, him or her. And what I wanted to do was control her. And I wanted to control the class. When my character defects are activated, I can't be my true self. What I'm being is that person prior to Al-Anon that was in everybody's business all the time. What I know today is nine out of ten times when something's triggered in me, at some level, it's something about fear. I'm afraid. I was afraid we wouldn't be the best. I was afraid we wouldn't be perfect. And I wanted to shine like a star. So when those character defects are taken out of, out of the way and I begin to laugh at myself, I'm then able to open myself to being of service to my higher power, being service to mankind, and being a better me. And with that, I'll turn it over to my partner, Rich. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Rich and I'm an alcoholic. What she said. <laughs> and now I'll turn it up. No, okay. I do like to talk. He, um, I spoke at a conference in Houston a few years ago and I was introduced as Randy. So that's what the introduction was about. Um, here's the deal. First of all, I had to figure out that detachment does not mean not caring. Because in my head, if I wasn't in there like trying to fix things, I didn't care. So I had to learn the difference between compassion and controlling. All those C words, right? And um, I really cannot detach unless I have a very good working relationship with a higher power who I know is going to take care of things. And you guys actually, 
I, I love this statement. You guys, I got this from you all. Don't just do something, sit there. And that was really hard for me to do. And I'll give you an example. Um, my mother, who lives back in West Virginia where I grew up, she has dementia and she's declining. She's able to still live at home, um, but we had to take her um, mail from her because she was falling victim to a bunch of scams. She was getting a stack of mail literally this high every day, and she would open every piece of envelope and send a check out. And so last year I started to realize what was going on. I had to kind of take over, become her power of attorney, and just do a whole bunch of stuff that grown-up people do that I never thought I'd be able to do. So a friend of mine back in West Virginia graciously offered to be the recipient of her forwarded mail. And then she goes through it, throws out the bad stuff, and just sends the rest of the stuff to her. I mean, it was just such a godsend because I really didn't know how to handle this. First of all, that I am open to help from other people. Well, anyway, my mother called me Monday. My friend, is her name is Susie. My mother goes... I don't want Susie opening my mail anymore. And I'm like, well, she's opening my Christmas cards. And I'm like, you're already getting Christmas cards? <laughs> I was just telling this story this morning. And, and what these organizations do is they send out Christmas cards with donation solicitations. And so Susie was throwing away the donation solicitation and just giving her the cards. But to everybody that my mother is complaining to, it sounds like Susie is opening her personal mail. And so I had to face the fear of making my mother mad. And I had to say, Mother, Susie is not opening your personal mail. Unfortunately, her dementia is to a point now where it's kind of like talking to a child who doesn't understand. And I finally said, you know what? Susie is not doing anything I don't tell her to do. So don't be mad at her. Be mad at me. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. And she hung up on me. I got, I got, you know, when your mother hangs up on you, you get a little upset. <laughs> um, but because I have been trained in this program to look at what the fear is underneath, I was able to let it go, and I gave her a couple of days before I called her again. And for about a half hour after that, I'm like, oh, no, I have to call her back, and I have to get her not to be mad at me. And so I'm like, what's the fear underneath that? She's going to ground me? And because I've been training this program to always look at the fear underneath and to examine that, it's able to help me detach a little bit better. And I called her a couple of days later. She goes, hello. <laughs> and I was able, I couldn't have had the conversation Monday night when I was getting a little upset with her. But when I called her back two days later, I said, Mom, I cannot imagine what it's like to have to give up some of your independence. But we love you very much, and we do not want you to lose your money. And this was the best way that we could figure out so that you don't do that. And I was able to come from a place of love instead of a place of controlling. It's weird because I kind of have to control her life now a little bit. But I do believe it is of service to her and to God. I really do. And I will tell you that I do an 11-step practice of meditation daily. I, I, I sit silent for 20 minutes twice a day. And just try to empty my squirrel cage of a mind. And because of that, it helps me to detach so much more easily in a way that I'm not even aware of until after the fact. 
So the best way for me to detach is to make sure I've got a working relationship with God, and that 11-step practice is, is, is part of that, if that makes any sense. That's all I have. And I'll give you Jim. My name is Jim, and I'm a grateful member of Alan. What detachment means to me, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> um, a week from now, I'll still be the same Jim. Right now, Jim's pulse rate's about 190. I'm real glad you just took CPR, because <laughs> I might need it. Um, what I try to remember is the me I am right now is uncomfortable. The me next week will be fine. What's different is the situation. And so when I detach, I don't try to detach necessarily from the person because the person's going to be the same. You know, they might be in a situation that makes them a little irritable, a little cranky. Um, but the situation will change, you know, and they will come back to the person that they're probably more comfortable with, too. Um, detachment was a really hard concept for me at first, and I, the only way I could get it was, this too shall pass. It's like, okay, so I can let go of it. Uh, let go and let God. Okay, I can let go. Right now, I can't let go of it. <laughs> but I know that the situation will change, and um, I will still be the same me. You know, the people I love are humans just like everybody else, and we all get freaked out and panicked and irritable and cranky. So I just remember tomorrow the situation will be different, and I'll be okay. 50. I want you to do 50. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks, you. I mean, thanks, you. Thanks, everybody. Um, when I first came in uh, to Al Anon, and many of you may remember this, they didn't say they used to say release with love. You know that idea of releasing with love. But in our literature, it says, you know, detachment is neither kind nor unkind. And I know that we often, um, from some well-meaning AAs, get, there are a lot of jokes about, you know, we're cold-hearted and... Sorry. <laughs> and really, there, I was somewhere at a convention, an Al-Anon convention, I had these little postcards that said, Detach, don't amputate. And I thought that was kind of clever because, you know, as, as we've said, I find myself, um, you know, it's important for me to detach only from those people that I love. Only from those people that I love. Because otherwise it becomes, it's, it's very simple for me. But it's when I'm in relationship with someone that I love that I find it necessary to remember what we've, what I've heard in Al-Anon, you know, the old image of the hula hoop. What's, you know, put the hula hoop around me. What is within that hula hoop is my business. What is outside of that hula hoop is not my business. 
And the, the slogan that has always been really helpful for me in learning to detach is, how important is it? How important is this? And what I find is there are not that many things in my life that are that important that I have to jump in and, you know, and uh, mess with things. When one of my boys was in um, rehab, it required us to go to Al-Anon <laughs> meetings. And I think in the, the parent group, I was the only one who was in Al-Anon. So the facilitator said, this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to drive, you know, over to the next neighborhood, and we're all going to go to an Al-Anon meeting. And I thought, oh, what a pain in the neck. I've already been to, you know, whatever. Anyway, so we go to this Al-Anon meeting. It's in another part of town. Uh, they don't do the right opening. I mean, they just did it. <laughs> they did everything wrong. <clears throat> but one man who shared was talking about being a lifeguard. And I spent, I mean, that's how I worked my way through school, was through lifeguarding and teaching swimming. And so I perked up. And he was saying that when you're trained as a lifeguard, and it's true, you never jump in, you never jump in the deep end with a person who's drowning. Because they, in their panic, will grab on to you. And unless you really know what you're doing, you're both going to drown. So the best thing to do is to use the poles that are there, throw them a towel, a life buoy, whatever is available. But don't get into the water with them. And that image of being concerned, of loving, of doing what I can without getting into the water with a drowning person has always been very helpful for me. Because particularly when it comes to my kids, you know, detachment is a something that I really have to look at. I have to look at my motives. What is underneath this? It's a very narrow line between detaching from my kids and continuing to parent them. So, I, you know, I'll give you a quick example. <clears throat> One of the kids, um, and I really hesitate anymore, when I used to speak and they were little, I used their names all the time. I mean, they were four and five and six. Who cared? But now they're not. Now they're adults. And uh, they do mind if I use their names. So <laughs> little do they know about those old tapes that are out there. But anyway. <clears throat> so one of them, uh, this was not so long ago, um, called and just said, you know, the difference between when I'm drinking and when I'm not drinking is like night and day. You know what we said in our home group, we use this wait. I, mean, I bet you're familiar with it. Wait, you know, why am I talking? And so I have to think about that when, you know, because my first thing is, great, now you see how much different your life. No, God sit on my tongue and just listen to this kid. So he's talking about it and he said, <clears throat> what do you think I should do? And I said, well, you know, there's always, you know, AA. I mean, that's where a lot of the family, you know, family members have found great relief in AA. It's changed their lives. Alanon has changed my lives. What can I do for you? And this child said, can you, do you know anybody in the area who knows of any AA meetings around me? So I said, no, but I can, I can get them. So I called somebody that I know that knows a lot of AA people throughout the country, and he immediately texted me the names of four men 
and their contact numbers. And so I passed that on to my son. You know, I texted my son all that information. And then I had to, and I still have to, let that go. That's not my business. My son's recovery is between him and a higher power. But it doesn't mean, I don't think, in detaching, that I don't do anything. It means that I try to stay out as best I can of their consequences. When they were under 18, I had to go to court with them. I had to deal with Cincinnati police. But I tried as best I could to make sure that their consequences for their behavior and their drinking became their consequences and not mine. Because I love my children. And I don't want to create any kind of a situation that will set up resentment that will poison that relationship. And so, you know, for me, the image of alcoholism being like quicksand, I have to be very careful about how close I get to it because I can get sucked in. I'm a human being. And I, too, have all these, you know, these character defects, whatever you want to call them, overused assets, I don't know, but whatever they are. <laughs> I'm not perfect, and I do. You know, I have to watch out for those things that, that create fear in me and that create uh, anxiety and create a lack of faith and trust and hope. So those are just some of the things. Um, well, there, there are a lot of things, but that's, that's, that's enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, question number two, and we're going to start with Kathy on response this time. Describe your spiritual awareness that led you to unmasking your true self. You know, uh, when Larry sent all of us the, the questions that we were going to address, I really, other than the detachment, I thought, What? And I did pay, and then I thought, I can't worry about that now. <laughs> so I, I don't really know how to answer this except to say, um, and Rich really addressed it, <clears throat> over the years, what has really become important to me is uh, my prayer and meditation. I mean, it's central today to my recovery. I can remember one time um, being in Texas, and an older man from Chicago was speaking. And he was talking about spending two hours a day in prayer and meditation. And my defense mechanisms, because I am very competitive as well, and I thought, well, it's easy for him to spend two hours a day in prayer and meditation. He must be 90 years old. What else does he have? I mean, I just went crazy because, I mean, my life was so crazy and busy with these kids and working and whatever. But... I have come to appreciate over the years how important it is for me to carve out of my day that quiet time, not only for prayer and meditation, but for those inventories, because that's what allows me to really pay attention to not only who I am as a woman in recovery, but also to pay attention to those things that continue to block 
and mask who I truly am. I hear a lot in Al-Anon, and I believe it, that this program, it, it's, a, it's a spiritual it's a spiritual program. We say that from the get-go. I mean, we say that our first beginners meeting with a group of beginners. This is a spiritual program. And for many of us, for most of us, it becomes a spiritual program of subtraction. It's not that, you know, it's, it's what alcoholism did for me and can also continue to do for me if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not practicing these principles in all my affairs, I can, through self-defense, just throw up masks that are not me. I do not know how to find my you know, who it is I really am unless I'm willing to spend quiet time with the God of my understanding and sitting with that and noticing. You know, I've heard it said before with meditation, it's not that we don't think of anything. It's just that we don't attach ourselves to those thoughts, but we pay attention. And as I sit in meditation, I'm paying attention to how much in the course of my life, I can throw up um, a screen so that I am no longer vulnerable to you. And that's not the way that I want to live. So I guess, I can't, what is the question? <laughs> <laughs> so spiritual awareness, I guess for me, it is just being aware of a power greater than myself that allows me that kind of vision and that kind of insight if I'm willing to do the footwork, if I'm willing to do the footwork. That's the only way I know to, to, you know, to strip away, as we say, you know, those layers, those layers that are so easy for me to put on to protect myself. That's all. Thanks. I remembered what I was going to say with the first question. <laughs> um, what I was going to say was when I used to get cut off on the highway, um, I would follow the person home and try to figure out which was their bedroom window. <laughs> um, nowadays, somebody cuts me off on the highway, I just say, God, get them, get them home safe. And that way I'm not taking them home with me. It's a lot easier. This too will pass. It'll pass quicker if I'm not holding on to it. What's the second question? <laughs> okay. Ah, the spiritual awareness that led me to unmasking my true self. Um, right before I came to Al-Anon, uh, I was in a relationship, and um, the woman was an alcoholic and kind of crazy. And she one day decided that she wanted to redecorate the house. So she threw out all my furniture, bought brand new furniture, and a week later left me with all her furniture. <laughs> so uh, what was left in my house was um, a microwave cart without a microwave, a mattress on the floor, and a metal folding chair and dust bunnies everywhere. Um, but I had this 10-foot-long couch in my basement that must have weighed 800 pounds. 
And I decided, okay, I'm going to get this couch up the basement stairs and put it in the living room. And I was going to do it by myself. And so um, made it up one step, and then I tried to balance it on boxes, made it up the second step, and now I'm underneath it with my back trying to push it up. Took about an hour and a half to get this 10-foot couch up the basement stairs. So I finally pushed it into place, collapsed on the couch. I was bruised. I was cut. I was bleeding. It felt like I had a hernia. And when I sat down, I felt like the loneliest person in the world. Um, if I would have asked somebody to help, um, we would have got the couch out in five seconds. I wouldn't have been cut, bruised, and bleeding. And I would have had somebody to talk to. You know, and I wouldn't have felt like the loneliest guy in the world. Unmasking my true self was just that Jim is not Superman. And I still think that sometimes. And every time I firmly believe I'm Superman, I stumble over a big heap of kryptonite. <laughs> um, so unmasking my true self is, you know, it's not those shining assets I have. Unmasking my true self is the stuff that I've tried to hide. So, and I'll remember what I'm going to say for the second question after the third question. Um, I've, I've been doing this meditative practice for about three or four years, and I, I agree with Kathy. When I first, when it was first introduced to me, um, to sit silent for 20 minutes or 20 minutes twice a day, I was like, I'm busy. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure what made me decide to do it or, or what, well, it was God, because I certainly wasn't going to do it on my own willpower, except it took willpower to actually carve out 20 minutes twice a day to do it. Um, but it also has helped me to uncover my true self. And what I will tell you is that I am a poor judge of what my true self is. <laughs> but I came in here with a lot of shame and secrets and self-loathing and resentments and fear. And having those things in me did block me off to whatever true self is in here. And that's what the 12 steps are designed to do, to get rid of all that stuff to the best of my ability so that there is nothing blocking me from the sunlight of the spirit. And then my true self is whatever God deems necessary to fit me to be of maximum service to God and my fellows. That's it. I've got it in my head. Well, I'm like this, so I never like that, and I don't do this. And the truth is, who am I to say? I'll give you a couple of instances where I'm a poor judge of, of who my true self should be. I've always liked to make people laugh. And um, when I was growing up, I was teased a lot, so I developed this kind of wit to kind of deflect that. And so that was me. I was always good for the laugh and the witticism and, honestly, the cutting remark. And um, in early sobriety, I started going to therapy, and I started uncovering, like, this this realization that I had kind of... I was using parts of myself to hold people off. But I got it mixed up in my head and I said, humor, that's not, oh, I'm not being authentic when I try to make people laugh. I've just got to be serious. 
And so there was this one winter where I was just the most depressing, serious person you'd ever met. And it was in a winter in the Northeast where we got like a foot of snow a week. It was the worst winter physically, mentally, and emotionally. And finally, someone came up to me and said, is there something wrong with you? You just don't seem happy like you used to be. And I'm like, well, I'm not using humor anymore to keep people away. He goes, we like that humor. It makes us laugh. (laughs) And I realized that that probably was an authentic part of myself. And to make people laugh was being of service to others. And so I I put that aside. Um, Another quick little thing that I'll say is um, I go by Rich, but my family calls me Rick. And when I got to college, I hated myself. And I discovered liquor. And it helped me to become somebody different. And somebody on my freshman floor, for some reason, just called me Rich. And I thought, Rich. It just sounded cool. (laughs) So I started calling myself Rich. And to this day, I'm called Rich. Two years into recovery, I go... Rich is just this construct that I made up, and that's not the the real authentic me is Rick. So I'm going to start introducing myself as Rick. So it lasted about a week. Every every meeting I'll go, "Hi, I'm Rick, and I'm an alcoholic." Hi, Rick, Rich, Rick, Rich. And finally, one day, this uh, woman came up to me after the meeting. She goes, "Is your name really Rick? I thought it was Rich. I've been calling you Rich for years. Is it not Rich? Is it Rick? Have I been wrong this whole time? Is it Rick?" Okay, I give up. (laughs) So I am rich and I am an alcoholic. (laughs) Thank you. So I think for me, um, actually when I got the question, um, I'm a word person, so I looked up the word spiritual and I looked up the word awareness. And what that phrase wound up meaning to me was... At what point do I become cognizant of the hand of a higher power working in my life to help the real me appear? And I think those, um, those layers started, I, well, let me back up. I think a lot of times I don't see, I don't, I don't become aware or cognizant of a hand of a higher power till after something has passed. Every now and again, I'm able to see it right in the moment. I like trees, and a lot of times if I sit in nature, I I feel that, and I hope you have this too, that connection that I am just in tune with my higher power, and, and I feel one with. When I first came to the program, I felt a part of, or a part outside of, actually, until I got to that very first meeting at the hospital group, and, um, I sat in that meeting not wanting to connect truly not wanting to connect. But on the way home from the hospital group, I cried uncontrollably. And the other half said, why are, why are you crying? And in retrospect, it was a spiritual awareness for me. I looked back at what had just transpired in that hour, hour and a half, and I realized how crazy I had become. That was a spiritual awareness for me because at that very moment, I became a part of that group, instead of thinking I was, like that page in the book that talks about how we envision ourselves on a ladder, I had always seen myself on a higher rung on a ladder, not just because I'm tall, but just saw myself on a higher rung of the ladder. And so 
For me, that process of becoming spiritually aware is something that needs to be fed and honed, just like I would learn to swim or knit. So I had to begin to practice once I accepted the idea of a higher power in my life. I had to sit and practice what becoming aware of that higher power was. And for me, a lot of times, becoming aware of a higher power is a smile from someone that I get in the morning. It's something that simple. It's sitting enjoying my cup of tea and having a word appear in front of me, whether it's in a book or a magazine or something on my phone or, heck, even on the Today Show, a word that I go, oh, wow, believe. Oh, wow, be a part of. Oh, wow, trust. It's me being in the moment and recognizing those things. It continues to be a process as I've stayed in the program. Um, I, too, spend at least 20 minutes every day in meditation, just quiet time. And for me to turn my mind off, because my mind is spinning 24-7, is hard to do. It began with setting a timer, actually, the whole time going, Jesus Christ, it <laughs> when will this be over? Because it was, it was so hard for me to sit quiet, but it's in those moments that I get that connection. I think there are other tools of the program that help me become spiritually aware. When I wrote my fourth step, there was a piece of me that went, wow, we've got some work to do. This chick's a little messed up. But on the other hand, there were those assets that I looked at and went, wow, Pauline, you are not as bad as you thought you were. To me, that was a spiritual awareness, not just about me, that there's a higher power that loves me enough and that I'm open enough to, that I'm able to see those qualities that need to be worked on and those assets that can be of service. I think there's spiritual awareness in just about every moment if I'm willing to pay attention. I think for me a key aspect of spiritual awareness is my willingness. And that means keeping my head with my feet. Extremely hard for me to do. Gosh, I, I work on that 24-7, and it is definitely a work in progress. But when I do that, then the authentic, real Pauline can be present with you. I'm not thinking about my next response to your comment. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to do after the meeting. I'm right here soaking in what I need to learn. In a group that I go to, um, and this isn't a conference-approved prayer, but um, um, it's a, a private in-home study group of, of the program, we use the set-aside prayer. Yeah. And the capsulation of that is um, higher power, help me forget everything that I think I know about you, myself, and my program, and help me be open to learn about you, myself, and my program. When I have that sort of awareness, that, that sort of willingness, rather, then the possibilities are endless. I get spiritual connections, and in those spiritual connections, I learn about me. I didn't think that I had a shred of compassion in me when I came in here. I, I truly did not. It, it didn't make a difference to me whether you told me your mother died or you won a million dollars. You always got the same response from me. And to find that I had compassion brought me to tears because I didn't know I had it in me. That awareness meant paying attention to an opportunity that appeared for me to show compassion 
practice that compassion, and then immediately follow it by gratitude to a higher power who gave me the opportunity to see it, to take action on it, to relish the moment of how that felt, and be grateful that I have that ability in me. So I'm grateful that even today, there's spiritual awarenesses even this morning when I got up. You know, I left the other half snoozing in. And, um, you know, just the fact that I love, truly love a person with my whole being is a spiritual awareness. And even this morning as I, I gave him a little smooch and left the room, I'm like, higher power, I am truly grateful that there is someone in my life that loves me just the way I am. Thanks. Well, it looks like we're doing good on time. We'll get the third question in. Nah, we wouldn't do. We wouldn't be controlling things. We would do. We're going to start with one of the boys. Sounds like a good idea. Which, which one you want to start with? Oh, Rich. Oh yeah. Okay. Or Rick, or Randy, depending on where we're at. Okay. Question number three, and we're going to start with Rich. How do you find the courage to step out of your comfort zone and be the true you? Um, first of all, I, I want to say that I am also a member of Sex Addicts Anonymous, and in my home group in that program, we use the set-aside prayer. And so I was glad to hear you talk about that. It's a powerful prayer, and it's asking me to be humble and not stay ossified in my spiritual beliefs. It's asking me to put aside, to set aside what I think I know, which, you know, we have a thinking disease, so what I think I know is probably not right, and to be open to what truly is. And uh, that's how I interpret that prayer. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is a fear prayer, and it's very simple. It's one sentence. God, please remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. And there's a promise right after that. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. It doesn't say, fear be gone. (laughs) It says we commence, we start to outgrow fear. So it means fear is still there. But now I have to direct my attention to what God would have me be. And so that's what I have to do when I'm scared. And let me tell you, on a daily basis, it's like a V8 moment. You know, I get scared and I, I twist around like a tornado and cuss. And then later I go, oh, I could have said the fear prayer. So um, it's something that I don't use all the time. But when I'm not scared, I remember it. <laughs> and so what I have to do when I am scared, I have to put aside. Well, first of all, I have to examine my fear, just like I was talking about a little while ago. What's the fear underneath? You know, and then I have to put that aside for the greater good, for the good of God. Because I am not being of service to God and my fellows if I'm letting my fear manipulate my actions or my inactions. I agree with Kathy. Sometimes detachment doesn't mean inaction. It just means a different action. And so that's to me, (laughs) you know, I came into this program. I just didn't want to feel the way that I did. 
And they said, okay, all right, all you have to do is keep coming back. And then, you know, after a while they dropped the other shoe and said, but it's all about God. <laughs> and it really is. And I'm glad at my place in my program today where I can accept that wholeheartedly, however imperfectly I am along this path of spiritual progress. That's all I have. Thanks. How do I find the courage to step out of my comfort zone? Um, I will never, ever be able to step out of my comfort zone if I don't accept 100% who Jim is, you know, his um, weaknesses and his strengths. Um, and that's the only way I'm going to have the courage to do that is if I accept me where I am. Um, I am a shy guy, and like I said, I don't like being up here <laughs> all that much. Um, and when I first started Al-Anon, after a couple of months, I was asked to be the chairperson of the meeting. And oh my God, you know, um, scared the snot out of me, you know, because this is important stuff we're talking about here. And, and I'm telling my sponsor, and I'm giving them all these excuses why I shouldn't be able to do it. And I say, what, what if somebody asked me something and I don't know the answer? And he said, Jim, if that should happen, you look him right in the eye and you say, I don't know. <laughs> well, that was absolutely brilliant. You know, I would have <laughs> never, ever thought about that on my own. Um, what gets in the way more than anything is the committee. Um, and the committee is that group of strangers in your head that you willingly give the key to your head to. <laughs> um, apparently my function with the committee is just to provide a meeting place. <laughs> um, finding the courage, again, is just accepting me where I am. And I do say this a lot of times in meetings that even though I've been coming around for a long time, I am still as judgmental as I've ever been. Uh, and you would think it'd be hard to do that after life kicks you around for 60 plus years. The difference today and what I learned in Al-Anon is that um, I just don't believe my judgments anymore. <laughs> uh, my head can tell me one thing, and I know it's the committee. And I say, well, okay, that's what I think, but that's not what it is. You know, I don't believe that. So stepping out of my comfort zone is just stepping out in front of you exactly as I am. Thank you. Thanks for going first, Rich. How do we find the courage to step out of your comfort zone and be the true you? So I think for me, where I got courage, where I began to learn courage to do things differently was in Al-Anon meetings. I would listen to people share how if their other half or their partner picked up an argument with them that they didn't go to every dance that they were invited to. And I remember the first time that the other half and I had an argument once we were both in recovery. And I remember, you know, my little group appeared on my shoulders and said, Pauline, you can walk away from this. 
You can walk away from this. You do not have to participate in this. Because I don't like shouting. And there was shouting going on. And I thought for sure that the earth would open and suck me in if I walked away. And I I remember I looked up at him and said, "Um, I have to pee. And I, and I left. I left the scene, and and um, I walked away from that argument. And that took. I know it sounds little, but my heart was beating fast. I my palms were sweaty. I had never done that behavior before, and I would not have known about that behavior if I didn't sit in the rooms of Al-Anon and learn the skills that I can use in any situation that happens in life. For me, courage a lot these days is about being comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm, I'm, uh, I used to think that I had to direct and control things so that I was always comfortable. Now I know in uncomfortableness there's growth for me. And that means having those challenging conversations if I need to. It means stepping out of my comfort zone and doing things that I don't necessarily like to do. It means saying, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. All of that gives me a little bit of courage. And I tell you, the other place that I learned a lot of courage was in service work. When I would sit in area meetings or district meetings and I would hear impassioned people share their ideas and and then everybody hugged and left the meeting, I thought, wow, How can I do this at home? How can I give that same respect to a conversation with impassioned voices in my own home, as long as they're not shouting? And that became a goal for me, to sit in the uncomfortableness of impassioned conversation and not go on the defensive, to do what the program taught me to do, to be honest, open, and willing. When I put a big dose of honesty, openness, and willingness in any situation, for me, that equals a lot of courage. And I think the other thing that I need to do that my first sponsor said to me for years, she said, when you go into a challenging situation, always take your higher power on one shoulder and me on the other. Remember the things that you've been learned. Use them as a reference. You don't have to respond to every question that you're asked. You can shut up. I love the weight. I'm going to use that when I need to. That's a new tool for me. But courage is not something that comes easily to me. It's something that I have to constantly work toward. But the good thing that I've learned about it is the more I do it, the easier it gets. I'm no longer willing to be that person that just sits and cowers either inside or outside because I'm afraid of consequences. I think what the program invites me to do is to come to the table of life and sit down with all my tools and go, bring it on. I'm ready. I get to do these things. I get to participate in challenging conversations. I get to talk to the boss about a situation that has bothered me. I get to be a loving person in a relationship with someone. All of those take courage to me, and I wouldn't have it unless I applied the tools of the program in all parts of my life. Thanks. Jen, thank you, everybody. 
How do you find the courage to step out of your comfort zone and be the true you? Like Pauline, most of what I've learned about courage, I've learned in Al-Anon um, through the men and women that I have been so blessed to be in meetings with, you know, talk to after the meetings, before the meetings, on the phone, and certainly my sponsor. But I think the basic source of courage for me certainly has to be from the God of my understanding. Um, <clears throat> some years ago, one of my kids, um, it was recommended strongly by the courts that he be sent away to this rehab place, and I was so conflicted about it because... You know, I'm a lifelong uh, resident of Cincinnati, and a lot of people who are born in Cincinnati stay in Cincinnati, and so your connections, or my connections, are lifelong. I mean, I'm still, you know, in a pathetic book club with my grade school friends, and I play cards once a month with high school friends and see college. So my relationships with my friends um, in and out of the program are lifelong. So when my kids were getting in trouble and being arrested or thrown, you know, in 20, in juvenile detention or wherever they were, I'm spending time with friends whose sons are being crowned homecoming king. I mean, you know, it's just, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to remember that um, that is that and this is this and that's their reality and this is mine. But anyway... So this one kid had to be sent away, and the courts were recommending it, and even he was thinking that it should happen. So I I was so conflicted. In the midst of this, I went to a wedding of one of my nephews. I come from a big family, and he and his bride had decided to get married in a very old, old church in downtown Cincinnati that at the time... Now, of course, it's been regentrified, but at the time, it was a pretty sketchy area. But <clears throat> the wedding was held there, and as I walked in in the back, I noticed in the back of this church, it was the statue. It was the, you know, replica of the Piate, 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 whatever the thing is, you know, with the mother holding her, you know, dead, her crucified son in her arms. And I remember looking at it and thinking, Oh, my God, I've never been in this church before. Wow, what a powerful thing. So fast forward three weeks later, i got to send this kid away, and I, I remembered that statue. And this church was only open um, for a noon mass. It was locked up the rest of the time because people had been stealing artwork and everything. So I went down there at the tail end of this mass just to get to this statue, I don't know why it called to me, but it did. And as I knelt before it, I'm not a crier, but as I knelt before it, I was so overwhelmed with grief. I just was sobbing back there. And I just stood, stayed, knelt there as long as I could, and I had this overwhelming sense of being surrounded by mothers. Because that church, when it was built, the story goes... It was built with bricks that were baked in the ovens of old women who were sending their sons off to war. And so I was struck by this image of being surrounded by mothers who, like me, were sending their sons off to places unknown. And when I left there, I was filled with not only the courage of those unseen mothers, but of the courage of so many mothers that I meet in Al-Anon 
who have to let their children go on their own journey of recovery or unrecovery. And I was able to take my son to the airport in two, two days later, and as I wrapped my arms around him, I said to him, I have no idea what this is going to be like for you. And he said to me, that's okay, Mom. I trust you. And that kind of courage came from some, it did not come from within me. It was a courage that was given to me by the God of my understanding and by such courageous women who allow themselves to release their children with love. Um, Fast forward not so long ago, and I'll be brief here, another thing. Um, One of my kids is in the military. He's a helicopter pilot. And he has been deployed four times, two times to Iraq, twice to Afghanistan. Makes me crazy. Um, However, because of you, I've been able to live through that and place him in the arms of a loving and compassionate God who no matter what happens he will be okay one way or the other. So this particular tour, he was flying outside of Baghdad. And when I was, uh, I was on my way to a meeting and I checked my email and um, what came up was this news flash that a helicopter had been shot down west of Baghdad and the entire crew had been lost. And I knew that my son flew at night. I knew that he flew west of Baghdad. And I knew that that was the helicopter, a Chinook. He's a Chinook pilot. And I remember looking at that and feeling like somebody had just set my hair on fire. So I turned off, well, before I turned off the computer, I went to my email and I just sent him a very quick, quick note that said, let me know you're okay. Boom. And then I walked outside because I'm a pacer. I don't get upset very often, but when I do, I pace. So I walked outside and I'm pacing and I'm looking up and I'm saying, you know, God... I don't know if this is my son, but if it is, I just have to trust that you will give me the courage as you have so many times to walk through this because my experience of God gives me courage. My experience of a God who is always on my side, who is always with me, gives me courage. And then I went to a meeting to be with the men and women who are that face so often of God for me. And when I got home, I ran to my email, and there he was. Mom, I'm okay. That was my replacement crew. And what I know is this, that that night I knew that my son was all right. But I also knew that there were five mothers who did not get an email. They give me courage. Two weeks ago, I clipped out of the um, Sunday uh, paper an article on a mother from Haiti who had two of her children, a four-year-old and a six-year-old, swept away into the Atlantic Ocean, just swept away. And I cut it out, and I keep it under a, a glass top of a table in my home to remind me of the challenges that so many people in this world face today and how many of them are able to face them with courage 
and I planned to borrow their courage. When my kids were little, there was a little story they liked, and it's a movie called The Borrowers. Many times where I get my courage to step out of my comfort zone is to borrow it from others, and mostly I borrow it from my Al-Anon family. Thank you. All right, that gives us just a little bit of time. I think that Kathy Blakey would like to uh, address you one more time. While she's on her way up here, let me remind you, as you're leaving the building, as you're leaving this room, the uh, restrooms across the hall, and to your left is the Fond du Lac rooms. That's where we have the baskets. And back over in the hotel on the second floor is where we have the hospitality suites.